0: You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Welcome. Uh, it's been a joyous morning so far. Uh, been great. I'm I'm Jake, our associate pastor here, and uh, we have been going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody been enjoying this series so far? Come on, it's good stuff. You know, we just wanted to choose something that was kind of bland and non-controversial. <laughs> Um, You know, something that didn't ruffle the feathers. That's really what we're here for. Uh, But today, uh, we are, you know, this whole series has been about some of Jesus' most difficult teachings. Uh, And today's teaching is no different. In fact, it might be the most difficult teaching that he has given us. Uh, But before we get into the passage, let me ask you this. What do you think was the most popular Bible verse during the first 400 years of the church? Oh, John 3, 16, that's a good guess, extremely good guess. That's the most popular Bible verse today. Uh, maybe it was Psalm 46:10. you know, be still and know that I am God, a Hobby Lobby favorite right there. Uh, Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we're getting close, now we're getting close. Okay, we're going to play a game. Uh, I'm going to quote some early church fathers from the first 400 years of the church, and you see if you can guess what the most popular Bible verse was. Justin Martyr, AD 160, we'll go chronologically. Here's four church fathers. We Gentiles who used to hate and destroy one another and would not live with men of a different tribe, now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. For Christ commanded us to pray, even for our enemies, to love those who hate us, to bless those who curse us. Irenaeus, 20 years later, Jesus commanded his followers not only to not not hate men, but also to love their enemies. Spoiler alert, that might have been it. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, he says, Loving one's enemies does not mean loving ungodliness, adultery, theft. Rather, it means loving the thief, the ungodly person, the adulterer. And lastly, Tertullian. He says, our religion commands us to love even our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. For everyone loves those who love them. It is unique to Christians to love those who hate them. That's just a sampling of quotes from the early church fathers about the most popular Bible verse in the first 400 years of the church. And it was Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And that was the most persecuted, one of the most persecuted times of the church. Um, You could argue that actually today is the most persecuted time of the church. There's more martyrs than ever before. And they were experiencing that. And yet that became the key to changing the entire Roman empire and changing the world. Uh, Saint Patrick, one of the most famous Christians to take up this command of enemy love, Uh, he is not the patron saint of drinking on March 17th. You might have thought that. Uh, he is actually the patron saint of enemy love. And this is what he did. He, he lived from 3, AD 385 to 461, and he grew up in Romanized Britain. And uh, when he was 16 years old, a band of Irish pirates and raiders came and destroyed his village and took people captive back to Ireland, and he was one of those people. He was 16. From the ages of 16 to 22, he was a slave in Ireland. Uh, and it was actually at that time during that he, he was the son of a pastor, but he wasn't a Christian. And it was during his time in captivity, in slavery, that he calls it a mercy from God, in which he uh, found a relationship with God there, uh, which is extremely mature for a teenager, right? And he uh, ends up escaping six years later. He gets back to Britain, barely with his life intact. And when he gets back, he decides, I want to study to become a pastor. And so he does. But shortly thereafter, he has this vision from God. He calls it the voice of the Irish, in which he sees the Irish people, and including his captors, saying, return to us, come back, and walk among us and to preach the gospel. And so he takes God up on that vision. He goes back to the place of his enemies. He goes to Ireland, and he starts preaching the gospel, including to the people who once held him in slavery. And he goes around the whole island of Ireland. And at this time, it's, it's run um, by Celtic pagan priests. There's like a Celtic polytheism. And they hate him. They're locking him up. They're trying to kill him every chance that they get. Um, but he is set on preaching the gospel and loving his enemies. And through enemy love, He baptized literally thousands of people. He planted a myriad of churches, and he saw the spiritual landscape of an entire nation change in his own lifetime. That's enemy love. That's what that did. Now, that's a, you know, we hear that story. Oh, that's a nice story. Good for him. (laughs) It's not really how the world works today. Well, you're kind of right. It's not how the world works today. Uh, In our culture, in our world, in our country, we love people who love us. We love people who think like us, look like us, but we hate our enemies. Let me ask you, who do you see as an enemy? Who in your life would you call an enemy? In our our country, in our world, we have a lot of them. You could say we have national enemies, Russia, Putin. What are we supposed to love Putin? North Korea, Kim Jong-un, love your enemies? What, Iran? A political threat, uh, a a nuclear threat, and also the place where Christianity is growing fastest in the world. There's political enemies, red versus blue, left versus right. Two parties absolutely hating one another. So much violence, so much hatred. Uh, My neighbor, as you're driving down the main street to my house, has a huge flag waving in the wind. And it says, bleep Biden. And you can imagine what bleep is not the actual word, Uh, and you know right away who his neighbors are and who they aren't, who his enemies are and who they aren't. You might be his physical neighbor, but if you disagree with the flag, you're his enemy. We hate our political enemies, but we love our political allies even more than our own Christian brothers and sisters. There's racial enemies, so much racial animosity, vitriol, violence, hatred, killing over this last decade in particular. Uh, we've even seen racially motivated mass shootings. What are, you, are you supposed to love the person who created such an atrocity, to love your enemies? And lastly, you have your personal enemies, the people who have wronged you, have robbed you of that promotion, slandered, smeared your reputation, turned their back on you, abandoned you, hurt you. Those are often our greatest enemies, the people who we once loved. What are you supposed to do with such people? How are you supposed to do this thing called love? Uh, Jesus gives us that answer today. And really, the world that we live in is not so much different than the world that he lived in when it came to loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. So pick up your text. This is where we're starting, Matthew 5, 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So that's verse number one um, that we're going through today. And there's this pattern that Jesus has been setting up. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. So he's quoting an Old Testament verse, maybe an interpretation of it. And then he's saying, here's the actual interpretation, my interpretation, the intent of that Old Testament law. Uh, for example, you know, you've heard it said, don't be angry, but I say Uh, You said, don't murder, but I say, don't be angry. Uh, Don't commit adultery, but I say, don't lust. And today, the first part of that says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, is you shall love your neighbor an Old Testament command? Yeah, definitely is, right? Leviticus 19, 18 says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself say so, yeah, that's the Old Testament command, is hate your enemy an Old Testament command. No, that is an add-on. That is something that the Jewish religious leaders, that's their interpretation, and that's what they taught the people of their day. Uh, they had lots of enemies. This word ekthroi for enemy is, includes religious, political, personal enemies. Their political enemy was Rome. Rome had been occupying their nation, ruling over them for almost a century by this point. And they were absolutely ruthless in the way that they treated the Israelite people. They taxed them to death. People were on the brink of poverty throughout all Israel. Not only that, but they enslaved them. They tortured them. They crucified literally thousands, thousands of Jews. So yeah, they were their enemies, right? Then you had their religious enemies, who were the Samaritans. The Samaritans lived just north of these within the camp. You had four groups, uh, Jewish sects, four groups. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the zealots, and the Essenes or the Qumran community. The Pharisees were all about religious purity and keeping the letter of the law. Uh, the Sadducees were more about political power. The zealots were more about taking uh, power back through lethal force. Um, violence, And then the Qumran community were kind of like the Pharisees, except they were separatists. They didn't live among the people. They had their own group. And they really uh, show what Jesus had said in this, you've heard it said statement. Uh, this is from the Qumran community. It says, love the brother, hate the outsider, love all that God has chosen and hate all that he has rejected, love all the sons of light, hate all the sons of darkness, so that, that's the common view of Jesus' day. Love your brother, hate the outsider. Love um, the person who loves you, hate your enemy. And the way that they were able to justify this interpretation is because they redefined neighbor as to include only uh, the Jewish people, and really only the Jewish people who thought like them. Uh, and we, they limited their love to a specific group of people, which was themselves, and we limit our love as well. Let me ask you, who do you limit your love to? Where do you draw the line when it comes to a neighbor? Maybe you're like, yeah, I'll love my family, of course, right? Maybe my extended family, except that weird uncle. Um, uh, those set of co- co-workers, yeah, I'll, I'll love those. And we get along. It's great. Not those co-workers, because we're kind of like against them. My boss, yeah, i probably draw the line there. I wouldn't call him a neighbor. Maybe this neighbor, but definitely not that neighbor. That neighbor's not my neighbor. Like, where do you draw the line when it comes to who your neighbor is? Where do you put a, lo- a limit on your love? We do that. The Jews in Jesus's day did that. But do you remember the story in which Jesus himself defines what a neighbor is? The Good Samaritan. Pick up your text here. Luke 10. Uh, this is in the Gospel of Luke. And this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably heard it before, but really, this gets at the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. It says, behold, a lawyer stood up to put into the test. So he's already coming at him with false motives, right? Put into the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he designed to do what? To justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. who stripped him, beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, one of the enemies, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer, the man who put him to the test, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So Jesus takes one of the enemies of the Jews, and he actually makes him the hero of the story. The Jews in the story are the ones who passed by this guy who was half dead, one of their own. And it's the enemy in the story, the Samaritan, who comes, binds up his wounds, takes care of him, and shows him mercy. He says, which one do you think was his neighbor? And really what we get from this story is that, the Samaritan didn't limit his love to the people who were in his group, to the people who were of his own ethnicity or religious beliefs. He did not limit his love. And in so doing, he took a na- an enemy and he turned him into a neighbor and a friend. And really, that's our main point right from the top here today is love without limits. That type of love turns enemies into neighbors. When you take the cap off of love, when you take the limit off of love, what you end up doing is taking these enemies who are in your life, and it makes them a neighbor. It can even make them a friend. When you hate your enemy, what happens? Hating your enemy keeps your enemy your enemy. But when you love your enemy, that is when they can be turned into a neighbor. And that is what has changed the world. That's what has changed Nations just like St. Patrick showing enemy love to his captors, and that is how Jesus has been changing the world throughout every generation. And so Jesus goes on to give more explicit commands when it comes to, what does this love actually look like? So pick up your text again, Matthew 5:44. He says, "I say to you, love your enemies." and pray for those who persecute you. So this is the last half of that pattern, right? You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, I say to you, love your enemies. That is command number one, not to put limits on your love, but to love even your enemies. Uh, What is love? I think we have to ask that question, because in our culture, love is a lot of different things. Uh, Most often, it's good feelings. Uh, Maybe it's... Uh, even infatuation. Oftentimes, it's just tolerance or affirming everything everyone does and believes, how they behave. But this word for love in Greek is agape, or the verb form agapao. And this is the highest form of love. It's the most selfless form of love. It's the love that God has shown us in Christ. And this is what a few commentators have to say about this type of love. D.A. Carson says agapao is generous, It is warm, it is costly self-sacrifice for another. Costly self-sacrifice. John Stott says true love, agape love, is not sentiment so much as service. Practical, humble, sacrificial love. Our enemies are seeking our harm, we must seek their good. And so agape love is actually more about how you serve someone else. It's much more tangible than simply good feelings. And you don't even have to have good feelings towards that person or feel good about it in order to serve them. In fact, this is some, um, some great wisdom from C.S. Lewis in A Mere Christianity. He says, don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking in the beginning. So whether you feel like it or not, begin to do it. Begin to serve your enemy and love your enemy. And who is the greatest example of this? Jesus, as always. Think about the night before he is crucified, the Last Supper, when he's with his friends. And he actually calls them friends that night. He stoops down. He takes a towel and a bowl of water, and he washes the feet of his disciples. Now think about this. Who was there that night? Judas, his enemy, the one who turned him probably to the greatest, greatest extent. And even though he knows that Judas, his enemy, is going to betray him, he calls him a friend, he eats with him, and then he does the task of the lowest servant, and he washes his feet. That is agape love. And that's what Jesus does, and that's what he calls us to do for our enemies. That's command number one. Command number two is this to pray, to pray for those who persecute you, to pray for your enemies. Now, this isn't praying that your enemies would fall down a manhole, or fall off a cliff, or that they'd get struck by lightning, or something bad would happen to them. Uh, this is actually praying God's best for them. This is praying for forgiveness and reconciliation. And what is God's best for them? God's best is that they would turn towards Jesus that they would experience him. A few months ago, um, it was the National Day of Prayer, and Josh said to me, he's like, hey, me and a few pastors from around uh, town are going to go down to the capital to pray for the National Day of Prayer. He's like, you want to come? I'm like, kind of busy, uh, but I'll do it. Okay, going to meet him down there, and uh, I meet him down there. I see him, and then I see a group of pastors, and then about 25 Satanists, and I'm like, What is happening? We go inside the Capitol, and the Satanists are like surrounding uh, the Oval, and they're chanting, Hail Satan. And I'm like, Josh, what did you ask me to come to? This is uh, not what I was thinking this would be. Uh, And that was also the same time that the leak about Roe v. Wade had come out. So there was signs with hangers saying, we're not going back, Um, things about abortion. And they're chanting, hail Satan. And it's, it was one of the most tangibly, Our hearts began to break for the people. Our hearts began to break for the people who were, um, were chanting these things, saying these things. And our, our desire is that they would experience the gospel, that they would experience God's love, his transformative love. That's what we wanted for these people. And when, when you begin to pray for your enemies that's what's going to happen to you. Your heart is going to begin to soften and to break for your enemies, for the people who are against you or against the things of God. Because you can't hate who you pray for. You could try, but as soon as you start praying, God's going to change your heart because he's aligning your heart with his Jesus, again, our greatest example, shows us this in Luke 23 when he prays for his enemies, when he prays for his persecutors. John Stott notes this about that experience. Jesus prayed for his tormentors while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and his feet. He kept praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayers for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? As Jesus did for his enemies, may we do for ours. So two commands, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And what Jesus does next is, in this passage, he gives us three reasons for why we do so. Reason number one, Matthew 5:45, He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So reason number one is this. We love our enemies because God does. That's what God does. And if you want to call yourself a child of God, a son or a daughter of your father in heaven, then begin to bear the family resemblance. Act like God. Be like him. We love our enemies because God does. And Jesus gives an example from the weather when it comes to God's love for all people. He says, hey, does the the sun shine and and the rain fall just on the just? Just? on the righteous, on the good? No, God's common grace is for all people. He makes the sun shine, the rain fall on all people. Does the sun shine in North Korea? Does the rain fall in Russia? Is there good weather in Iran? I don't know, never been there. But it's probably decent. Does he make the weather nice only for the churches in the Treasure Valley? No, he, he loves all people. That's his common grace. Grace and that type of, of love, a love that loves even the unjust, the unrighteous, and the evil, that is, that flies in the face of our contemporary culture. Because in our culture, where we say, the unjust, the evil person, cancel them, hate them, maybe even kill them. That's what we do to our enemies. But God's love breaks the limits of human standards. His love is limitless and loves even the evil, the unrighteous, and the unjust. Let me ask you this. Would you say that the KKK is unjust? Unrighteous? Yeah, definitely. I hope you'd say that. Uh, Our culture would say we should hate them. We should cancel them. Maybe they should even be killed. There's a black man, a Christian man, who broke the limits of love. He turned enemies into neighbors and friends. And his name is Daryl Davis. He's a famous piano player. He's known for um, being the piano player for Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, BB King. Um, But he's also famous for converting 200 members out of the KKK. He has over 60 robes that have been given to him by people who have left, including the robe of the Grand Imperial Wizard, which you're like, what is that? (laughs) <laughs> That's the national leader, the national leader of the KKK. He has one of their robes, and in fact, that guy's robe, uh, he walked that guy's wife down the aisle to him, and he is actually the godfather of his grandchild. It's pretty crazy, right? How do you do that? How does, how does a black man convert two hundred people out of the KKK? Well, he did it with dialogue over dinner. He would have people over to his house or actually he would go to their house by himself and he would have dinner with them and he would legitimately listen to them. Not that he agreed with them, but he would legitimately listen to them. Uh, They would have conversations. He would push back in a respectful way. He would tell them his own story. And after many, many dinners and conversations, this is the result. He would build a relationship with these people And that type of enemy love ended up turning enemies into neighbors and even friends and godfathers. That is enemy love, and that's what Christ calls us to. It's a beautiful example. Reason number one, love your enemies because that's what God does. Reason number two, Matthew 5, 46 through 47, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So reason number two, enemy you love uniquely sets Christians apart from the world. It is unlike any other love that exists because it is directly from god himself it's the type of love that god has shown us and that is what we are called to show all people it is very unique and distinct from every other form of love and jesus says hey even the tax collectors love each other that's nothing new and in the first century the jews absolutely despised tax collectors. right? The tax collectors were Jews who were employed by Rome to go and to get Roman tax from the Jewish people, putting them into poverty. And then Rome said, hey, yeah, tax collectors, take some off the top so you can pay yourself. So these guys were rich, pocketing off their own people. Who were, they were taking money from their own people to give to the enemy. So the Jews absolutely hated the tax collectors. Funny enough, the person who wrote the gospel of Matthew is a tax collector, right? Matthew himself. And Jesus says, hey, even those tax collectors, they love each other. So if you just love people who love you, you're no better than them. Think about Jesus saying that to thousands of people, thousands of Jews. They wouldn't have liked that. That wouldn't have been nice for them to hear because, because love uh, from God is unique, It's not like the rest of the world. So let me ask you, who do you limit your love to? Do you put limits on it? Do you simply love people who love you, look like you, think like you? Or does your love break the limits of human standards? Maybe you've been asked this, man, why are you so kind? Or like, why do you do this for me? Why are you the way that you are? That's how you'll begin to know that your love is unique, That's how you begin to know that your love is set apart from the rest of the world. And so he uses the tax collectors first to say, hey, even they love each other. Is your love so different from them? Love your enemies. The second group he uses are Gentiles, so non-Jewish people. And the Jews also despised the Gentiles. They wouldn't say hi to them. They wouldn't greet them. They definitely wouldn't have a meal with them. Absolutely not. And Jesus says, if you only greet people Who are like you then you're no better than the gentiles again this would have made the people probably pretty upset and greeting here is more than just like a hi or a hello it's the beginning of a relationship it's even hey come over to my house for a meal this is more than simply a hello a greeting although it starts with that and so does your love extend beyond the limits of the people who look like it had time to read the whole thing. It's an incredible uh, chapter on enemy love. Um, But this is what he says. Here's an excerpt. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Hey, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Maybe invite them over for a meal, something that the Jews would have never done with a Gentile, right? Maybe you invite them over to a meal, and that is how you begin to start this relationship, even with your enemies. And that's how you practice enemy love. There's a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, She was a women's study professor at Syracuse University from 1992 to 2002. And her primary academic field was English, critical theory, informed by Marx, Freud, Darwin, and specializing in queer theory. She was also a feminist lesbian who oversaw the LGBTQ group at the college, at the university. And towards the end of her time at Syracuse, um, she. Uh, began to research the religious right. and Why did they hate um, LGBTQ people, right? Uh, And she actually wrote an article against the Promise Keepers, which was like this Christian organization back in the 90s. And this uh, one pastor from a local Presbyterian church happened to read that article, and he sent her a letter. And at the end of the letter, he asked her, hey, would you be willing to come over and to have dinner with my family? And so she took him up on the offer, started coming over to this pastor and his family's house for dinner on a regular basis, Uh, ended up having lots and lots of conversations and dialogue and even reading the Bible together. And after she says about 500 dinners together, over the course of several years, uh, she became a follower of Jesus. Two ideological enemies, right? But this, she says it was the radical yet ordinary hospitality of this family that showed her Jesus. And she submitted everything to Christ, including her sexuality. And funny enough, she's married to a pastor today. Um, But that's enemy love. Um, That seems impossible, right? Two ideological enemies yet coming together and this family showing her love week in, day in, day out. That is enemy love. So maybe your love that sets you apart from the world can start with something as simple as a meal and having someone over to eat. So reason number one, love your enemies because God does. Reason number two, love your enemies because it's a unique type of love that sets Christians apart. And then lastly, um, reason number three is Matthew 5, 48. It says "You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." Wow, I'm not perfect. When you read that, are you like, "Oof, I'm definitely not perfect, and be perfect because God is perfect. I'm definitely not that, right? Well, this, this verse really sums up the entire chapter about who God is. Uh, but let me break down this word perfect for one second. So it's this word in Greek, teleos. And the theologian Craig Blomberg says this about how to translate the word. He says, perfect here is better translated as mature, whole, i.e. loving without limits. That's his words, not mine. So Jesus has already said to be like our Father in heaven by the way that you love your enemies, by the way that you love without limit, turning enemies into neighbors. That's how you love like God. And fascinatingly enough, this verse uh, shows up in a parallel account of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6. And this is what he has to say. He says, Luke 6, um, be merciful as your Father is merciful. So be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Be merciful as your Father is merciful and then a few chapters later is where we get that parable of the good samaritan and jesus says which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor the one who showed what mercy so be perfect in the way that you love like god loves man be merc- be mature by the way that you show others mercy as god has shown you mercy now, here at Hill City, we have a discipleship chart, a stages of discipleship. You've, you've probably seen this before. We use it a lot. And maybe where would you like kind of identify yourself, put yourself on this chart? Uh, we all want to be progressing towards mature faith, right? That's, that's the goal here. And part of mature faith is this. Your level of maturity is directly related to how much you love your enemy, Do you want to keep progressing down that line towards mature faith? Begin to love your enemies as God has loved you and as God loves his enemies. Don't put a cap, don't put a limit on it. Begin to love like God loves. And in so doing, you will be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. So, a few practices as we close up. This is how we actually grow and mature in enemy love. Number one is to pray for your enemies. This is the first step pray for your enemies. This is how your heart will begin to soften. This is how you'll begin to gain the wisdom of God to know what your next steps are for loving your enemy. And loving your enemy is completely unnatural, isn't it? We don't want to do it. It doesn't feel like we should have to, but this is called of us. And so what we need is the supernatural help of God to come to help us to love our enemies. So number one is to pray for your enemy. Number two is to then tangibly serve your enemy. Maybe that starts with bringing them a cup of coffee. Maybe that starts with rolling in their bins uh, from their front uh, off the street. Maybe it's writing them an encouraging notes, or bringing them a meal, or bringing, uh, having them over for a meal, just like with Rosaria Butterfield or, or Daryl Davis tangibly serve your enemy. Start by doing so this week. Number three, this might be the hardest of all, but it's to forgive and to seek forgiveness. You cannot love your enemy without truly forgiving them. And you will not be able to move on in your own life without forgiving. Forgiveness is a trap. What, sorry, a lack of forgiveness is a trap. <laughs> <laughs> Forgiveness will trap you in loving your enemy. Uh, If you do not forgive, a root of bitterness grows deep into your heart. And it'll stay there and it'll only get bigger. It'll ruin your life. But if you forgive, you will immediately begin to feel that root of bitterness being dug up from your heart. And you will be able to slowly but surely forgive your enemy and the person who has wronged you. Now, let me clarify something. Love without limits doesn't mean love without boundaries. So boundaries can be one of the most loving things that you do for people in your life. Love without limits also doesn't mean staying in a physically abusive situation. That's not what God wants for you. But what he does require of you is forgiveness. And to start by praying that, softening your heart, and then actually forgiving the person And we also have to seek forgiveness. We can't stop there because we have a saying around here that says, if you're only 2% responsible for a conflict, you're 100% responsible for that 2%. So even if you have the most minuscule part to play, you still must seek forgiveness. And in this way, you will love your enemy. Lastly, thank God for making you a friend through enemy love. Everything we've been talking about this morning, God has done for you if you are in Christ. And if you're not, mean, hey, get baptized. Sign up to get baptized today. Become a friend of God. He wants to make you so through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because the reality is that everybody who is in Christ has been made a friend of God because of the enemy love of God himself. We'll close with this beautiful Summary of the gospel from Romans 5. It says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his what? His enemies we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Let's do what God has done for us, to love our enemies, to love without limits, to turn enemies into neighbors and friends. And when we do, we will see the world change before our very eyes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross for us. That you wanted to change us, turn us, transform us from enemies into friends. And truly, you call us friends of God. I pray that you would put a softness into each of our hearts that desires to love tangibly our enemies, that helps us to forgive them, that helps us to even make them into friends and neighbors. God, you have done so much for us. Help us to see that, the reality of what you have done for us. And may that prompt us, call us, create a passion and a desire in us to do this very same thing that you've done for us. We could forgive and love our enemies, but nothing is impossible with God. And so we hand over, we entrust these difficult situations over to you. we put our enemies into your presence, asking your best for them, God. May we shine the light of Jesus just a little brighter in this world through the way that we love our enemies. Your kingdom come, your will be done in each of our lives here today, in our church, in this valley, in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.